Good morning, everyone. We're reading from Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But still Jesus made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Thanks, Sally. Morning, everybody. Paul Cooper's my name. Um, Most people call me Coops, though, so feel free to refer to me, well, any way you like, really. Um, Great to see everyone here again. Uh, I hope you all had a great Christmas, and if you're new or you're visiting, I want to extend a very special welcome to you. Uh, Great to have you along and joining us this morning. Uh, um, You've had a bit of an overview from Craig. We are um, just stepping out of our series Uh, that we've started on Matthew, and we're going to do a couple of one-offs. So we'll do a little bit of Mark today, and uh, next week we'll um, take a bit of a look at Revelation. So if you've got your Bibles or your devices there, and if you could keep them open at Mark 15, that would be great. I'm going to refer to that as we go through. Um, Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can meet and hear from your word this morning. Father, we just pray that you'd help us to hear the message that you've got for us, Um, that we'd understand it, you'd help us with that, and that you would help us to act upon it uh, in this coming week. And uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you remember about a week ago, uh, we looked at uh, Matthew, and we looked at the birth of Jesus. That was the, uh, the very beginning there of Matthew's gospel. And so now in Mark, we've sort of fast forwarded all the way through to the other end of Jesus's life, almost anyway, just before his death by crucifixion. And you've heard, as Sally read there, there's this uh, picture of this crowd, right, crying out, bellowing out for Jesus' crucifixion, for his death. And as we started this, I wanted us to sort of try and think, you know, what would it be like if we were there? Could you imagine being in the middle of this crowd, you know, all of the bustle and the, the shoving and the pushing and the yelling and the smells? What would it be like to be there, looking up at Pilate, looking up at Jesus, and all of this crowd, you know, yelling for his blood? And what would we have done if we were there um, in the middle of that crowd? How would that crowd behaviour might have affected us? That's the question I want us to wrestle with. 
I told you one of my own experiences um, months ago now, when I was a kid growing up in Kalgoorlie, in town in a country town in WA, it's a fairly rough town, and uh, I was at primary school there, and you'll remember I told you this story, uh, all the kids, about 400 of us on the Oval, we used to play there uh, at lunchtime, and a couple of teenagers decided they'd scale the fence because they wanted to sort out a couple of my classmates, and my classmates, you know, got pretty scared, they started running off the Oval, and so we all looked around and thought, well, we better follow them, and we all ran off the Oval too, 400 of us, running off the Oval, just because they were, all because of a couple of teenagers uh, running at us um, from the other side. So none of us particularly brave. All of us were caught up with the crowd. And uh, there's been a fair bit of research, actually, in crowd behaviour, and I'm sure you're probably aware of some of that, in adults particularly. There was a, an experiment on social pressure back in the 50s. A guy called Solomon Ash, he was a psychiatrist, and he carried out this experiment. He got 50 people and he gave them two cards that look like uh, these cards on the screen. And he asked them a simple question, you know, which, which uh, line, so which line from the, uh, the first card there, the single line, which one most closely matches the lines on the other card? Seems pretty obvious, right? But he did this experiment in groups and he planted people in each group who would deliberately give the wrong answer, trying to research peer pressure. And he found that a third of all the people that he surveyed would conform to the peer pressure, of the, they'd conform with the crowd, and they'd give the wrong answer, even though, you know, it's fairly obvious what the right answer is, up to a third. And there's been other experiments. There was one done in the 60s, this one uh, from an experiment called the Milgram Experiment. Now this one, they put people in pairs, and they wired, uh, like the, the, they had to answer questions. The person answering the question was wired up to this fake machine, and the, uh, the questioner would ask a question, and they had to give them an electric shock. It's a fake electric shock, because the machine wasn't real. But the person asking the question didn't know that, so they'd ask a question, they gave the wrong answer, the people organising the experiment would say, go on, give them a bit more, turn it up a bit. And they would, to the point where, it, uh, they, if there had been a real machine, they would have been lethal. So if they got it wrong, kept turning the power up, to the point where the shock would have been lethal, the questioner didn't know that it wasn't real, and uh, up to half, about 50% of the people asking the questions were encouraged to the point where they would administer a lethal shock um, to the, uh, the answerer giving the incorrect question. So I was preparing for this sermon and, and just reading through the crowd and the crowd behaviour condemning Jesus, and as I said uh, at the beginning, how would we behave if we were there? Because if you're like me, like you read this or you hear it read and you think, yeah, this is awful. Here, here, how could these bloodthirsty cowards condemn an innocent man to death? And I think back to when I was a kid running off that oval and I read through some of this information of these experiments that have been carried out and think, well, actually, if we were all there that day, you know, maybe there's a hundred or so, maybe a little bit more than a hundred of us here today, you know, at least a third or up to half of us may well be yelling, crucify him. That's a disturbing thought, isn't it? It's confronting. And so there's a real sense of tragedy in this passage. If uh, you recall that account of Jesus, he's become more and more alone, alone. He's been deserted by his followers. The religious leadership, well, they've turned on him. 
And now he's facing Pilate, the Roman governor, utterly alone. And even knowing human nature, even knowing that about us, Jesus allows himself to be led away to a death that he doesn't deserve. So that he can provide an outcome of forgiveness and life to those who don't deserve it. That's the character of God. And so I want to look at these 15 uh, verses under three points. What's Jesus done? That's the first point. What should be done with Jesus? That's the second point. And then finally, we'll look at what Jesus will do. So three points. What has Jesus done? What should be done with Jesus? And what Jesus will do. So first point, what's Jesus done? Let's take a look at verse 1. It says, Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now, it's interesting here, the question, I think, why was he handed over to Pilate? The religious leadership, they want him dead, but they can't carry out the death penalty under the Roman, you know, the uh, oversight of the Romans. Not lawful for them to do that. So they need Pilate to carry out the death sentence. And if you remember, uh, back at Jesus' trial, and in Mark that occurs back in chapter 14, they actually charge Jesus with blasphemy. That's the charge they level against him. You know, to disrespect God. Now that's not a charge that Pilate's going to be particularly interested in, isn't it? He's a Roman governor. He doesn't believe in God. He wouldn't care about a man who was being blasphemous. He wouldn't care about something he didn't believe in. And so in this trial before Pilate, we can see that they've accused him also of something else, something that Pilate would be interested in. Pilate asks him here in verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? So they've accused him of being a king, and that's a charge Pilate would be interested in. The Romans uh, don't want people putting themselves up as kings. They don't want insurrection in their empire. So if you think about the sequence there, the whole, this whole thing is ridiculous. Jesus has been on trial in front of the religious council, and now the case is referred upwards to Pilate, and what he's charged with has changed. Now, that's like, imagine us, it's like us going to the Supreme Court of South Australia because we littered, you know, and the case gets referred up uh, to the High Court, and when we get there, they charge us with running a red light. Like, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It makes no sense, like a mistrial, like something that you would get there and it would be dismissed. And so Jesus answers this charge against him, but he doesn't answer it directly. When he's asked if he's the king of the Jews, he says, you've said so. So do you see what he does here? Jesus agrees with the statement, but he does it in a way that doesn't necessarily agree with what Pilate means by the question that he's asked. Do you know what I mean? Like if I said to you, did you run a red light? And you said, you've said so. Well, you haven't really agreed with me. Not completely, have you? Like you haven't said no, but you haven't agreed. Maybe you um, ran through an amber light that changed to red. That's close to what I asked. And Jesus here, he's not completely agreeing with Pilate either, but he's not denying it. And the Gospel of John gives us a little bit more information where Jesus explained there that his kingdom isn't of this world. And so Pilate perhaps begins to see what a circus this all is. That maybe there's a little bit more than what he's been led to believe. 
Now in verse 3, the chief priests, they accuse him of many things, like they're piling on the accusations, trying to get something to stick. And we can see here that Pilate's no fool in verse 9. It says it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. So Pilate knows this is rubbish. Which is ironic, really, isn't it? You know, Jesus, he is the king of the Jews in a very real spiritual sense. But he refuses to lead an armed rebellion. He's not that sort of king. And so those who reject his spiritual claims accuse him of rebellion. It's ridiculous. Pilate sees it and he knows that Jesus is innocent. And in actual fact, so do the crowd. The crowd can't point to his guilt. If we skip it down to uh, verse 14 for a minute. It says there, Pilate asked the question, why? What crime has he committed? And the crowd don't answer, do they? They don't give an answer to the crime that Jesus has committed. They just shout, crucify him. Because he hasn't done anything. They don't have an answer. This is an innocent man. So if we go back to the beginning of this account in verse 4, Pilate asks, Aren't you going to answer me? Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now to be questioned like that, I don't know if you've been in that situation, but not to reply is very unusual. Um, The University of Pennsylvania, the law school, did a a bit of research on this. And they said 80 to 90% of suspects, if you're arrested, 80 to 90% of suspects didn't use their right to remain silent, which is in the US, 80 to 90% of people will talk. I can think uh, for myself, back when I was working, I had a guy on my team and um, we were going to put him in uh, Papua New Guinea to um, do some work on our behalf. Anyway, he made up an email signature making himself out to be the country manager. And he wasn't. And uh, this email got sent around to uh, you know, different customers and so on. Eventually the CEO finds out about this And he called me up and suggested it might be good if I made my way upstairs quite quickly. And he wanted to understand what was going on, right? So he asked me. And I talked. Like it's a natural reaction when you're in that situation. You want to defend yourself. Yet here, here is Jesus faced with death. And he only confirms who he is and then stays silent about everything else. And actually, he's linking us here to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament written centuries before Jesus' birth, Isaiah 53, verse 7, where Isaiah says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So you see, in this account of Jesus before Pilate, he's fulfilling this prophecy that Isaiah had written. And so Pilate marvels at his silence. He can't understand it. This man facing crucifixion who won't talk and won't help himself. And in reality, if we read on in Isaiah, what he's doing is preparing to carry out the greatest miracle of all. He's fulfilling this next part of Isaiah in verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. See, Jesus is innocent. He's done nothing. He doesn't deserve death. But he's about to do everything. He's ensuring here that 
He'll go to die for the sins of his people. Now that's the first point, what has Jesus done? Second point, what should be done with Jesus? And as this narrative unfolds, we see from verse 6 onwards, Jesus no longer features as sort of an active participant in this story. But everyone in this account is faced with Jesus and they all have to make a decision about what they do with him. It's the Passover, we know that from earlier in the Gospel. So this is the Passover festival where the Jewish people remember the mercy and the grace that was extended to them by God back when they were enslaved in Egypt. Pilate usually releases a prisoner at the feast, one prisoner. And so look at verse 8 with me. The crowd came up and they asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Now that's a pretty non-specific request, isn't it? They don't actually come up and ask for Jesus. You know, if you, you want something, you ask for it specifically, don't you? Like if my kids want ice cream after dinner, they would normally ask for it. It's not, can we have dessert? It would be, you know, can we have ice cream, please? You're very specific when you want something. And Jesus is right there in front of the crowd. And they don't ask for him. And so Pilate offers Jesus to them there in verse 9. And this is where the chief priests get very busy and they run around the crowd stirring them up. And as a result, the crowd asks for Barabbas instead, or Baza, as we heard earlier. So can you, can you see what's happening here? At every step in this account, everybody is making a decision about Jesus. Initially, the crowd, they don't seek Jesus. And even not to seek him when he's right there in front, that's a decision. And then when he's offered... They're influenced by the leaders and the crowd and they reject him. The chief priests, obviously, they've made their decision about Jesus. They've rejected him. They want to protect their power and their authority. And Pilate makes his decision. Take a look here at verse 12. What should I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. So this is the governor asking the crowd the decision that he should make. You know, it's like... Here, Van La, the governor of South Australia. Imagine him coming out on the balcony of Government House and saying, listen, what should I do? Like, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And there's some evidence Pilate was in a weak position politically here, so maybe he's trying to keep the crowd uh, calm. But regardless, he makes his own decision and he puts his interests ahead of an innocent man. So everybody in this account has to make a decision about what to do with Jesus. They have to. He's right there in front of them. I remember uh, talking to a guy in his 20s a couple of years ago. And this guy, this was a guy, I was asking him about Jesus. Did he know Jesus? He was a guy who was loving life. He was in his 20s. He was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. He was at uni, partying, lots of mates. I asked him about Jesus, I told him about him, and he said, you know, I'll think about that and make a decision when I'm a bit older. And he was looking at me at the time, and I wonder whether he was thinking, you know, when I'm like you, and, you know, life slowed down a fair bit. <laughs> but, you know, I'll just think about that later. And what I couldn't get him to see, no matter how hard I tried, was that that was a decision. He'd made one right there. And like I said... Uh, last week when we were looking at the birth of Jesus. When it's a yes or a no decision, you can't not make a decision. Everybody makes a decision about Jesus. 
So that's the second point. What should be done with Jesus? And now finally, what would Jesus do? Well, verse 15 says, Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So because the crowd insisted, Pilate has Jesus flogged, which is a terrible torture. Often uh, one application of that would kill. And Jesus is delivered over to be crucified. Now I did a bit of research on, um, on crowd behaviour, as you know, and I uh, looked at one of the legal aid websites. It actually says here, if you encourage the offenders of a crime in any way at the scene, if you shout out or you yell encouragement or you give them directions, then you can be charged as a principal in the second degree. And we've already established, right, that Jesus is innocent here. And I'm not a lawyer, engineering's my background, but it sounds to me that that makes the crowd and the chief priests here guilty of at least second degree murder. And so Barabbas, the murderer, is released to the murderers. It's the Passover, but the guilty are released. The Passover, as I said, God's mercy to his people, the mercy that God showed to his people at Passover, and mercy wasn't shown to God. And so I, I don't know how you feel as you read through this passage, but I think it's understandable to read it and get really angry, you know, that this guy Barabbas, this character... He is getting off free. Like, well, how is that right? Where is the justice in that? And then I realised, actually, that's my situation. Barabbas is exchanged for Jesus. Jesus' death is substituted for Barabbas. And Jesus dies in Barabbas' place. And this Barabbas character, he doesn't deserve the life he's been given. And Jesus doesn't deserve the death that he'll go on to suffer. But that's what Jesus' work on the cross offers to everybody in the crowd. The chief priests, to Pilate, to everybody who's there, and to all of us. If we decide to seek him and place our faith in him, then we'll have life. Because Jesus, who didn't deserve death, he took the punishment that we deserve for ignoring God. That's how he brings us forgiveness. He was substituted for us to deal with God's right judgment and anger. And I wonder if you can see just the wonderful picture of his character in doing that. The gracious character of God. God the Son on the cross to save through faith even the accessories to his murder. That's who God is. And that is the undeserved gift that he offers us. Everybody makes a decision about Jesus. Don't be swept along with the crowd. Make your decision. Seek Jesus and accept him as your king and receive his gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your mercy. And gracious act in sending your son to die in our place in order to bring forgiveness and life. And Father, we ask for those who have not yet placed their faith in you that you would help them to seek you 
and to place trust in you. And Father, for those that have, we pray that we would remember always that magnificent gift that you've provided. That it's not deserved, but your character is one in which we are confident in your saving mercy. And that would we, we would be forever thankful.